In this episode, we discuss how to build a scalable and secure industrial IoT infrastructure using open source. My guest on this episode is Jeremy Theocheris. Jeremy is the CTO and co-founder of a company called United Manufacturing Hub, which is centered around an open source project that combines state-of-the-art information technology and operations technology tools to help engineers build industrial IoT solutions. A quick thank you to our sponsors. This episode is made possible by our friends at HiveMQ, who are providers of an enterprise-grade edge and cloud-based MQTT broker. So please do check them out to help support this podcast. Welcome to the fourth generation podcast here on Industry4Auto.tv, which is a series of weekly interviews designed to help you learn industrial IoT from some of the world's leading practitioners. So if you're new here, please do subscribe and click on the notification bell to make sure that you never miss any of the interviews. And if you find this conversation interesting, please review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify, and you can also connect with me on LinkedIn at Kuzai Mandi Teresa. Now, here is my interview with Jeremy. So, Jeremy, uh, it's great to have you on. Yeah, nice to be here on your show as well. I'm really looking forward. Uh, I've been really hyped about it. It's actually my uh, first podcast. So, uh, let's see how it goes. Awesome. Okay, so to get us started, uh, uh, Jeremy, so we we are currently witnessing a, a situation whereby uh, to, to remain competitive, manufacturers are increasingly under pressure to adopt digital transformation. And, and the most critical step in the digital transformation journey of, of a manufacturing organization is the integration of uh, information technology with uh, operations technology, uh, otherwise known as ITOT integration. Now, mm-hmm. what I would like to find out is what do you see as being the biggest challenge uh, in IT OT integration? Yeah, um, good question. Um, I think the biggest challenge has actually nothing to do with anything technically. Um, so no, no, not with the technology. So uh, I'm a strong technology person, so it would be, would be cool for me to, to say that. But no, actually, the main challenges is everything around the topic of technology. Um, IT and OT, I mean, the term already says it. So there's IT on the one side and there's OT on the other. So these are two different worlds. They somewhere split up somewhere around the the 80s and they avoided talking with each other as long as possible. And now in the field of industrial IoT, they suddenly need to work together again. And this is making things very complicated. And this is also causing for a lot of issues and challenges. Um, so just to give examples, so IT, for example, doesn't understand what's really going on in, in OT. So they have like these computers in their production machines, but they're not really computers, they're PLCs. They have their weird certifications, compliance, whatever. It's, it's just a, a little bit, weird and the other way around as well so there is ot and then ot the only contact points um were that uh ot needed to get some some internet access so on ot is kind of annoyed about the all the firewalls um and the, 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 the taking of the data out of their hands so it usually wants to 
put things into the cloud and for the OT person, it's once it's in the cloud, it's hard to, to get this data back. So you have these yeah. two separate worlds that avoided each other. And now they need to, to talk again with each other. Um, there are entire group of solutions out there which are just targeted at, uh, at one of these sites. So there are example tools um, for the process engineer, um, which is just designed to circumvent the IT. So they have like mobile data, uh, cellular data in it, and just to bypass the IT so that it gets quicker. And I, 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 they're doing a project at a larger company. Uh, we talk with various people from IT and OT. And amongst others, we talk with the IT security expert. Uh, IT security expert in that company. And it was a larger company. I don't want to say the name here. Yeah. Um, and he said, oh, this is nice. This is actually the first time we heard anyone from OT calling us. So there was an entire section of IT, IT security, and they have never talked with each other. And this is like the, the biggest challenge. Uh, two worlds, they just grew. Everyone has their own words, their own standards, their own way of thinking. And now they're separated. And from technical perspective, if, if you want to go into the technology part, it might, it might sound funny, but actually for us, the hardest challenges there are getting electricity and getting internet access and additionally having a machine run. This is, uh, if we take a look back at projects where uh, we struggled with, it was always because we couldn't get electricity, we couldn't get internet, or the machine was, was, not, not, was not running. And um, otherwise, it's... It's quite easy. So as soon as you get electricity, as you have internet access, which means you have the buy-in from OT because you got electricity, it means you got the buy-in from IT because you have internet access, um, it, it gets quite easy um, because you understand both of these worlds. And there is rarely any new technology in the field of industrial IoT. There is not really magic in it. Um, most of the stuff swimming around in the mud pit of industrial IoT, they're just recycled, well-established technologies, uh, techniques, tools, and it's quite boring. So not many salespeople uh, actually use it uh, like that. But for companies who don't have a larger budget, it's actually good because it means they have access to first, well-established technologies, and second, to cheap to cheaper ones. Oh, okay. That's, that's very interesting. That's very interesting, the, 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 the kind of way uh, of perspective that you put there. And uh, somehow you found it uh, necessary to actually uh, build a, a, a solution, right? Because uh, you, you are the co-founder of a company that has been uh, gaining quite some traction in industry as far as uh, enabling digital transformation is concerned. And uh, it's called the United Manufacturing Hub, or UMH mm -hmm. in short. Uh, can you give us any introduction into what the United Manufacturing Hub is, uh, a background of how it came about, and what problems you are trying to solve precisely? Yeah. So our story goes back into the year 2016, when we were a system integrator, and we had really pains of integrating and maintaining various industry 4.0 solutions. So we were 
system integrators and we were there responsible for going to the top floor and showing that it works. And the existing vendors on the market at, at that time, they were very costly and they were only focused on the end results. So they went to management and they sold them a cool OE dashboard or they sold them productivity improvement. But these solutions, they weren't really addressing the actual challenges in industry 4.0, the integration and the maintenance part. Uh, just to just to give one example, um, it's actually very hard to extract data from the shop floor. Um, theoretically, it's easy. Uh, you have OPC UA. Um, it's basically, from a theoretic perspective, just just can plug into the PLC, talk with OPC UA, and you're done. But practically, it's really really difficult, and it's also something that does not get talked about that often. Um, first, you need to have physical access. So networking, electricity, cables, someone who opens the electrical cabinet. You have to talk about compliance, certifications, uh, stuff like that. And once you're connected to the PLC, you have the problem of OPC UA. Um, OPC UA is so complicated that each vendor just does their own stuff. Uh, it, OPC UA, uh, this is now my personal personal opinion, but I think other experts would, would agree. OPC UA is designed for, for the machine builders and they just sat together. They said, okay, we want to have now a standard, but everyone wanted to keep the way they were doing things. So they just incorporated everything into that standard. And now you have OPC UA via TCP, the standard one. But there's also via HTTP, so OPC UA versus uh, via uh, HTTP. You have OPC UA via MQTT, via WebSocket, and there are a couple of binary vi variants even, each of them incompatible with the others. And it's it's just absolute mess. I'm still personal waiting for uh, to, to get OPC UA via USB stick. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 I, I personally think it might come at some time, but yeah, so there's super various variants. So you just want to connect the machine and it says, yeah, it has OPC UA and yeah, now you have to, to work with that mess. And even if you have now managed to connect with that, it's super painful because you might not get all the variables, parameters, tags out of the machine. Um, I, I, I had it once, it was super, Super weird and uh, and at the same time funny. Um, it was a it, it, Italian machine builder, and we did a project, and we said, "Hey, we need OPC UA." Was really pain to get it, and then they installed the machine, and we were there, and we were connected, everything was working, and then we saw it only had like one data point, and we were like, "What? What? We can't work with one data point. We need." we need more we need to work with the data and they were like oh but but you only specified like one so uh yeah uh, we, this just this step cost us two months and this this these types of pains they're just more and more uh security demonetized zones and then the management comes with some super expensive solution uh, cloud solution to, which you just need to connect to rest api so we were just really fed up at one point um, because we were so frustrated and then decided to do something about yeah. it. 
And what we then did was we uh, founded the, everything that we did so far, we open sourced it. Um, we founded the United Manufacturing Hub and we're now focused on integrating and maintaining large scale IIoT infrastructures. So we, we cannot solve of all, all of these problems. Also the United Manufacturing Hub is not something that will solve all of these pains, but we can make it, we can try to make it as easy as possible. Um, we can provide with best practices. We can provide with potential issues that can happen um, and so that the end user can circumvent it. So just to get back to the OPCUA example, um, we can't, we cannot just use, not use OPCUA. We have to use it. Um, but uh, our recommendation, for example, is to take the data and just put it immediately into MQTT, Kafka, Unified Namespace. I think we can later talk about it um, because it just makes things much easier uh, to immediately take it, take it out of that world. Now you can easily process it. You can send it to other directions. And these types of best practices and tools, and uh, you, you can have now multiple brokers with MQTT, which easily fits into demilitarized zones. And this is something that we, that we want to, 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 to deliver. And uh, everything is open source. And to be uh, what the United Manufacturing Hub now is, very specifically, it's a helm chart for Kubernetes, which combines best-in-class IT and OT tools and brings it into the hands of the engineer. And everything, just all these tools that the engineer would come up anyway, just everything packaged together in, in, in a single tool that the engineer can, can have it in their hands and can then just deploy it and maintain it. And this is the pains that we're solving as the United Manufacturing Hub and what we uh, and how we're um, how we're mitigating them. Oh, okay, that's that's interesting. So, like, for, it's, it's quite clear that you you, you have a, a deep conviction that uh, open source is the way to mm -hmm. go. So, why do you believe that open source matters so much? Yeah, um, first, it's there is no lock-in effect, and this is really important when talking about infrastructure, because if you do a wrong decision here in the point of infrastructure, it can get very, very costly. And if you take a look at IT, it's open source there in the areas of infrastructure, it's just normal. You have Docker, Terraform, uh, Kubernetes, Postgres, you have Redis. Of course, you could talk about whether Redis is actually open source because they had this license change, but open source is prevents from lock-in effect. And Additionally, it creates a neutral zone. Um, we've had it with machine vendors. Um, it, it's actually like three or four, four years back where we um, where it was at the, at, the, at the customer side and they were talking about there was one customer with two different machine types and the one machine vendor didn't want to send the data into the cloud of the other. Uh, I mean, I, I can understand it. Why, why should I uh, increase the market share of one of my competitors? No, I want to have my own solution. And, uh, and open source eases that up. I mean, open source, it belongs to nobody. There is no, there is no um, 
there's no real market share and this is something that that's really that's really helping and so you have a neutral zone and one of the questions that people just immediately ask wow open source it sounds super great uh, but 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 how do you make money um especially if you come from ot this is like why why are creating all this this stuff and then giving away for free doesn't make sense Where, where's the catch yep. and there are various ways how you can monetize on open source. Um, there is the approach that we're taking is something that customers absolutely love, but investors, they really want to kill themselves when they hear it. Uh, it's, it's, it's support. Uh, super, super cool concept for the customer um, because a normal company, they, so at one point you will get problems when you're working with the architecture. Um, this might be every couple of years, you might get a very rare database problem. And as a company, it's just not, you, you cannot just pay a database expert to be on standby for the next three years so that when a database problem occurs, that you can just uh, immediately solve it. Um, so what we're offering is, uh, we're bundling all of these experts and we're offering unlimited support licenses. So we, we take all of these experts and now the customer can, they can just call us, write us in the email, et cetera. Uh, and we will be saying, him, hey, in this response, with this response time, we're guaranteeing you an answer. And this is something that a lot of, this is like one of the options that you have for monetizing open source. The other options out there, there's software as a service so that you have a managed service. This is something that, for example, Timescale, uh, just the first that come, comes up to my mind that they're taking up. Then there's the option that you have like an open core and you're selling software pieces around it. Um, there are uh, companies, I think Red Hat did it initially. They just provided services around it, um, various ways how we can monetize it. And But one thing, all of these elements, and this is what I think open source is important, all of these elements, what they have in common is that it's really easy to throw out the vendor again. Um, because the core, the core infrastructure is open source. If the vendor, if you don't like the vendor, you can throw them out. You don't have to pay anymore. Uh, of course, you won't get, be getting support, but there is no lock-in. You can still do, you have the full control over your infrastructure. And this is something that's really strategically important. And this is also something that where we say, okay, this is why open source is important. Oh, okay, that's that's interesting. So, as we have described it, you you, you have put together uh, these open source technologies to form the UMH stack. And so, what I'm interested to find out is what criteria did you use uh, in picking these core technologies for your UMH stack? Yeah, um, we have three uh, three from a technical standpoint, technology standpoint how we should design in general systems. And then we have a fourth point where it's about other strategic organizational requirements, uh, how we selected the components for the United Manufacturing Hub. Um, the, from the technology standpoint, um, there are three, reliability, scalability, and maintainability. And they come from one of my favorite books. It's uh, designing data intensive applications uh, from um, Martin Kleppmann. And what it basically says, it's 
reliability is defined as the ability of a system to keep working, even though you have hardware fa failures, you have software failures, or you have human errors. So which means reliability means the system continues working even though a hard disk fails or a physical server fails or there's a programming bug so the container starts itself or there is a check some checks that the you that humans interacting with the system cannot destroy it um happens more often than than you might 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 think um, this topic of reliability so all the components that we have they need to be reliable then there's the topic of scalability, the ability to deal with increased load. So load messages per minute. Load is can also be amount of machines that are connected at the same time, and the system needs to be able to, to scale. So there is a vertical scaling, just putting more RAM into it and uh, or more CPUs, and there's horizontally scaling. And if we're now thinking about, okay, at one point we, we have like, 10 machines, 20 machines, but we're connecting more and more plans and we take a look in the future with the machine learning, et cetera. So everything will just, we will do more and more with the data. So the system needs to be scalable. So we have, the system needs to be reliable. The system needs to be scalable, but also it needs to be maintainable, which means during the lifetime of the, of the uh, product, of the system, there will be a lot of people working with it. And all of these people, it doesn't matter whether they come from IT or OT, they need to be able to work productively with it. So from IT perspective, there are some operability uh, things that you need, that, that the system, the components that they need to have, uh, health checks, monitoring, logging, so that if something happens, the IT can write, uh, write a piece of software and integrate it into their, their architecture that if something happens, they will receive immediately an alert. So if the hard disk is at 80% full, uh, before it goes to 100%, they have someone expanding it. Um, there's the topic of uh, simplicity, that you shouldn't make a system too complicated because the simpler it is, the better, the easier it is to understand for someone who comes in 10 years uh, to understand what, what happened here, also documentation. And then there is the point of evolvability. And the, now we talk again about unified namespace. It's about um, making it easy in the future to put in new changes. And these are like the three uh, methods or, or requirements from, from the book. But then there are also others, so like open source, because we are open source tech, we also need to uh, all the components that we need need also to be open source. Uh, otherwise, we couldn't include them in the stack. There is um, applicability, applicability um, which means it needs to be able to, uh, to be used by a lot of various people. So not only IT, but also OT. And this means having the correct data standards, uh, ISO 95, so that OT understands it. It needs to have specific... Um, logics just designed for for just designed for for the manufacturing environment it, it it cannot be a pure pure it solution um for example um node-red is, is a good example it's it's from it perspective not really reliable and scalable it it's very good but from it perspective it, it's not it's not in the top five percent but it's very easy to use by OT engineers so this is, this is where the point of applicability comes in. 
And then we have the topic of security. Um, and let's be honest, security is just really bad in OT. Um, you have PLC vendors, they're throwing out security issues and problems. They're just throwing them out like Smarties. It's, it's amazing. If you take a look at the CVEs that they have, it's just every year there comes like a new super critical uh, security flaw that they, uh, and these are the ones that they're publicly, uh, that they're saying that they, they have publicly. And I industrial IoT, now connecting these devices with these um, security flaws, now connecting them with the cloud, it just makes things way more exploitable and just make worse. So um, all our components that were selected, they need to have, or how we, how we put them together, it, they need to have security by default. So, um, so for example, demilitarized zones so that we recommend, hey, uh, take data via, out of the PLC via Node-RED, push it into MQTT broker, and only uh, Node-RED has access to the, M, to the MQTT, uh, sorry, and only Node-RED has access to the PLC. Uh, so now we're creating demilitarized zone. So we have, just, just to summarize, we have the, the, the three technical points, reliability, scalability, and maintainability. We have, and we have other elements of strategic nature that where we said, okay, all of these components, um, you can't fulfill all of them, um, but we need to make the best out of these requirements. And yeah, that's, the, that's it. And uh, it, it took a long time. We're still reworking elements because we're getting new information or newer technologies come up but right now i think we're at the point where where the stack is scalable uh, with kubernetes stuff like this it's maintainable it has docu it's documented and you have the concept of unified namespace um and it's re reliable maintainable yeah so maybe still on that topic of the core technologies you've mentioned uh node red can you maybe like give us a, a list of those core technologies that you currently have on your stack? So I know you've got Node-RED for collecting data yep. on the PLC. Yep. If you can just give us a list of the core technologies that you've got. Yeah, if, if you want to, we can later also take a take a look at the um, at, at, at the website. Um, so at the at the lower level, we have Node-RED um, yep. for extracting data out of the PLCs. Um, we have a lot of self-written microservices just to extract data from the sensors. We have uh, everything then goes into MQTT or Kafka. Um, we can later talk about why why, why this is um, why, why this is important. Uh, but so we have uh, MQTT, we have Kafka, and then we have Timescale as the main database in it. And we just recently we published an, uh, only yesterday we published an article comparing TimescaleDB to, to to historians or also to InfluxDB. Um, so each of these points I can really talk for hours about it. So yeah. I'll just give a give a give a rough rough summary. And then on the top we have Grafana, which is a very good visualization tool. And uh, in between we put put a lot of work in pre-configuring everything and putting in custom microservice. So between database and Grafana is actually self-written microservices uh, for, um, for automated OE calculation. 
There are some other components. There are caches like Redis or uh, memcached. There are um, there, there's there's a lot of lot around. There's everything is in Docker containers. There's Kubernetes, uh, but but these were like the main main technologies here. So it seems your your the unified manufacturing hub is based on the microservices uh, architecture, uh, yeah, which yeah. is it's something that is new to the industrial world. So mm -hmm. maybe for the benefit of the members of the audience who are not familiar with microservices, uh, can you first of all give us a brief a brief description of what microservices are, and then mm -hmm. explain what are the benefits of uh, modernizing industrial systems architecture uh, using microservices? Yeah. So um, let's take uh, let's take 10, 20, 20 years back. So 10, 20 years back, software in IT. Um, also in OT, it was monolithic. So you had everything uh, bundled in one single executable where you could go over with your mouse, press double click and install it. Uh, so everything was in it from the front end, back end, um, small database, everything was in one, one file. And this is like the monolithic approach. This is something just to mention some, some software that OT people might know. Capware is a good example of monolithic software. It doesn't I'm not saying it's bad. It's just how how things were were done um, a couple of years back, and there are a lot of options why you should go for monolithic or uh, or microservices. But Capware is a classic monolithic uh, application. There are other applications. Um, I've worked with uh, ThingWorks, for example. It's also everything is bundled in in in, in one file, and it's much quicker to set up. Um, but if you want to really scale it out, so for, for, for smaller scales, it's really good because it's really good to easy to set it up. It's good to maintain. But if you now want to, to really scale and quickly scale, so imagine now you're Netflix or Uber or uh, Pokemon Go. Uh, I, I don't know if you know it, Pokemon Go. Um, it, it's, a, it's a success story for microservice architectures. So imagine now you have, one day you have, 10 customers accessing the server, but tomorrow you have 10,000. Um, this, this will happen in IT and it, yeah. you cannot do the, um, you cannot do the vertical scaling. So you cannot just put in uh, as many RAM, RAM, uh, RAM sticks uh, as you have new users. So what you there have is the microservice architecture. So instead of having like small, uh, one large piece, uh, you st suddenly start to to uh, make smaller pieces. So you have not one program that does everything, but you might have like hundreds or thousands of smaller programs, microservices, and they can just do stuff like adding numbers, like very, very simple example. Like they get two numbers and they give you the, the, resp the result out of that. And the advantages are now that you can now Put this microservices you can put it on very multiple servers at, and you can now load balance between those servers and if one of these servers fails it can automatically redirect the to the other microservices just doing the exact same function and with with that uh, these are the advantages of course there are disadvantages for example it's harder to set up so if you already know, okay, this will never be bigger than my plant, or uh, this will never leave leave this this company, then the monolithic approach is a good choice. But if you are thinking about scalability, um, 
then uh, microservices is a is, is a good choice. And it's there are also some 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 other factors. Um, I recently watched a video from a guy from BMW uh, explaining their their, their 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 architecture, and they were using like uh, Kafka and also microservice architecture. And he said for them actually it was not about scalability; it was actually about decoupling. So uh, you have now a lot of comp uh, people working on the same product, and it can get painful to put everything into one code base. And instead of that, now everyone. Each team can now work only on a small microservice, which uh, now you can make everything independent of each, each other. So in, in total, it gets a little bit more complicated. But for each of these teams, it's it's easier to, to work now because they don't have to think about merge conflicts, about v versions of the, of the others, and they're just more flexible. And this type, uh, concept of decoupling, flexibility, flexibility was, for example, for them uh, quite important. So you, you you have already mentioned um, uh, MQTT and Kafka mm -hmm. as being the two key uh, core technologies uh, that you are using for exchanging data uh, within the United Manufacturing Hub. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you please explain to us why these two technologies uh, independently and why bring these two together for your data pipeline? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, the... So uh, just to ex ex explain both of these technologies very quick. So um, both of them are related to event-driven architecture so that you don't have like a client-server communication. You don't have your web browser accessing a server and getting response. It's about connecting with a message broker and sending messages into the message broker and receiving messages back. And um, this both, uh, both protocols are... Uh, implementations of event-driven architecture. And the reason why we're now using them is at, at first we started like with a very naive approach of just sending all data just to the cloud and taking, taking uh, and then analyzing it on later stage. Um, there were a lot of problems that we, we've had with that. It's, uh, it was hard to analyze the data in the cloud and uh, because you, you are not there at the production facility and some data is just better contextualized directly in the factory. And for that, we started using uh, MQTT at first, a uh, unified namespace, where you send all the data first to a message broker, and then now you can flexibly subscribe to it, which is... Um, which is very good, which really eased up a lot of, a lot of our pains, but... At one point, when it came, came to data processing, we struggled a little bit with it um, because MQTT is only guaranteeing you the delivery of messages. But what happens now if you have, uh, especially if you start to scale out system, you always have to think about uh, failures or what happens if something does not work as intended. And with MQTT, if you receive data, uh, you send it to the MQT broker, you will get an answer back, okay, it was received. Um, but now imagine something, this MQT broker will now send the message to, to microservice. The microservice will say, yes, I, got, I received it. But after sending that, I received the message, uh, this microservice crashes. And now 
there's no way for the microservice to recover from that. Of course, it can be restarted, but the data uh, inside of the microservice, uh, if it crashed before it could have been written to a database or uh, reprocessed and sent back again, this data is now lost. And this might happen more than, than you would expect. So um, even if you just have like 99.999% reliability, as soon as you start sending a lot of these messages through it, you will encounter these edge cases. And to counter with that, we put uh, Kafka, um, Kafka beside it. I don't want to explain the exact functionality behind it. It's basically writing into to, to, to log format. And so you have producers which send, which write their data into log. So the lock starts at the at the top and then just gets bigger. Then you have consumers basically starting again from the top and start consuming all these messages. And with this, you can guarantee that there are no messages lost and that you can process all of them. And what we're doing is we com we combine both of these technologies. Um, so MQTT is a very important um, protocol for the IoT and also in the industrial IoT because it's just super easy to use. And um, so we're gathering all the data via MQTT and we're bridging it and we're bridging it to, to Kafka. And then with Kafka, we can do all the um, high performance data processing steps. So in every, in, if anything crashes there, everything can recover again. And the results are then again published to MQTT. So it's kind of both systems exist in parallel. Both of them have advantages and we... In the United Manufacturing Hub, we have both of them in there at the same time so that we can leverage both, both of the advantages of them. Um, and we're not the only one. Um, I've, seen, I've seen a couple of talks or presentations uh, from, uh, from, from Confluent together for, with, for example, HiveMQ, where they start, where they talk actually about this type of, of architecture. So you have MQDT together, the messages, and then you put it in give it to, to Kafka for scalable data processing. Oh, yeah, yeah, I certainly agree that this sort of data pipeline is quite common in industry, uh, so much so that even HiveMQ developed a, an extension just to connect to, yeah, yeah, yeah. to Kafka. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so like, uh, does OPC UA play a role at all in your United Manufacturing Hub stack? And if so, what, what role does it play? Yeah, so I uh, already ranted a little bit about OPC UA. And I know uh, yeah. also if you take a look at YouTube, you will find uh, other people uh, also ranting about OPC UA. So at first, it, first it, it's good that they have at least one standard because <laughs> without OPC UA, it's, it's even more of a mess. Um, but as, our, we pre as I previously said, our goal is to get the data. We have to work with it, but we to get the data as quickly out of this OPC UA stuff as possible and put it into MQTT Kafka so that we can work with it. And this is why, how we're uh, thinking about OPC UA. It exists, we need to connect to it, but let's just work in other systems than, than OPC UA. Okay, interesting. Now you've, you've, you've raised the issue of a, a unified namespace a number of times mm -hmm. uh, earlier on this call. Maybe let's dive into it. Uh, could you expand on that concept of the unified namespace for us? And, and maybe to make it easy to understand for the audience, 
give us like a comparison of the unified namespace uh, with uh, uh, alternative architectural approaches. Yeah, so um, I already introduced at the beginning the topic of event-driven architecture. It's it's a really uh, hardcore IT term, and uh, but but it really, like I said at the beginning, there there is no magic in it. So also the concept of unified namespace. I got get a lot of requests about people asking me, hey, what is it? And I say, okay, this is all well-established technologies. Um, it's unified namespace is nothing more than event-driven architecture with a small catch. Um, in event-driven architecture, you only publish messages to a message broker uh, that you actually also want to have consumed. Um, so you only send a message there uh, because you know, okay, there will be one or two consumers that will do something with it. And the unified namespace, you're just sending everything to the message broker so that you have on a later stage, everything accessible. And that is unified namespace. It's, 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 a, it, it, it's a concept, um, but it's, 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 it's a breakthrough for, for the OT because let's let's take again a couple of steps steps back um how OT is thinking right now or we're thinking 10 years ago um there is the concept of, of the automation pyramid so for it first started with with uh, isa 88 um somewhere around the 90s for where they wanted to standardize the how how companies think about the production and it first started with batch production. Then they did the ISO 95 standard for discrete manufacturing as well, just to combine everything. And in there you have, um, it's a well-established uh, concept. You have this, what I, uh, I think already said it, like the concept of site, you, uh, of an enterprise, you have a site, you have an area, you have um, a, a, a production line, you have work cells, you have equipment, PLC tags, this type of stuff was defined there as well. Um, but in general, if you take a look at the automation pyramid, uh, you have like four levels. On the lower level, you have all the all the sensors, then you have like the PLC, then you have the SCADA or HMI, you have the MES, and on top you have the ERP system. And the principle in there is that each layer can just talk with the layer directly above it or under it. And the concept of unified namespace now breaks this entirely up. So there's, uh, instead of, of having these layers, you say, okay, let's just publish everything into a central, uh, into central message broker. And now the ERP can start exchanging information with, with a PLC. And this is like a really breakthrough, breakthrough concept. So um, clearly you, you, you have an understanding uh, that data modeling is is fundamental to any industrial IoT solution, mm -hmm. because when I explored uh, the the UMH, uh, I, I I realized that you created a data model which includes a database model, uh, a data model, and a data model for 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 messages, and a data model to 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 represent the different states of industrial machines and and assets. So what I'm curious to find out is. What factors influenced the design of, of the UMH data model? Yeah, that is, uh, that's an easy and a very hard question. Um, so 
I, I, I can later go go through uh, talk a little bit about what what we're thinking about it. But in general, this topic is quite hard. So you have to because you have to think if you go go a little bit back, we have to think about IT and OT. And you now you need a data model that fits both both of these. So what we did is at first when we created everything, um, we tried to take a look at all the standards that were out there at that time. So there's, for example, for machine states, there's like Weinsteffner standards, there's PACML, Euromap, there are a lot of various standards out there. So we try to, to take them because for, for the, the topic of machine states, so what state can a machine be in? Is it running? Is it running with half speed? Is it running with reduced speed? Stop because of preventive maintenance, et cetera. There, there are a lot of standards regarding that. Um, we incorporated everything. Um, and now we we had a good good uh, good feeling for for all everything machine state related, and then we start looking at the other areas. So, for example, in IT, there's the topic of uh, normalized databases. So how database needs to needs to look. So we we incorporated that. Um, the topic of MQTT, we took a look, for example, at Spark Plug B, but um, I know there is a lot of hype around it. We've taken every time there, if there is a peak in the hype, we all, we take a look again at Spark Plug B, but we don't, we still don't see any value add there, and we think that the topic, um, the topic structure is quite, uh, quite restricting. Um, so we we took out a look at what's out there, and now we try to combine everything. And our goal is that the IT can work with it. So that you can put it into a normalized database, but also the OT can work with it. So you need to adhere to ISO 95 modeling standards. And additionally, it needs to be also easily usable. Um, and this is something that gets neglected very often. So the, the practical things, like I said at the beginning, we, we had the pain ourselves. It was like, oh, the OE is very easily calculated. You just have to uh, co combine these numbers. But if you take a look on the, how do you get to these numbers, it gets really complicated. So IT and OT, um, and let's just give one example. Um, for example, the topic of uh, data contextualization or digital shadow. Um, so who's responsible for, for uh, taking the time series data and putting it together with a the, with the produced product? So it could be OT. OT could just send all the time series data to the cloud and the information about when the product was produced and leave it to IT. But IT will then get a lot of problems because they don't really understand the process. There could be data missing, et cetera. Or would, do you put it everything that the OT te technician, the OT engineer, that he needs to, um, to, to do all the, the magic? And um, for example, that he needs to provide only single message sending uh, the, this product uh, product A with screw number H uh, has this and this newton meter. Uh, the screw was screwed in with this and this newton meter. Uh, there are a lot of a lot of topics around it, and we try to incorporate them all into it. And it's really hard, and we're still still working on it. So, for example, on the 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 topic of um, historians and open source databases, doing that, we spent a lot of time on the ISA ninety five model. How does the asset modeling work? And this now we will take 
and again rework our MQTT topic structure, for example. So it's we try to take the best practices in IT and OT, and we try to make them easily usable. And this is what the data model is based on. So now, as you have explained, uh, that data modeling makes it easy to integrate data. So within a, a, an organization. So uh, what I would like to find out is, uh, was this was the approach of the UMH when it comes to like multi-site uh, 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 deployments? Like, how does that data integration work in such a situation? Yeah. So um, we. Uh, we started. We coming. We came into to to this field of I industrial IoT through a larger management consultancy. So at, immediately at the beginning, we were facing larger larger architectures. So we were at uh, one of our, the first larger project. It was immediately involving multiple plants at the same time. So everything that we did, we took that in focus that we need to not only focus on one plant, but that we have to incorporate all the plants, and even further, we have to incorporate it into the entire IT infrastructure. And one of the, the things that, that we considered there was, for example, um, that we have multiple brokers. Uh, at the beginning, we were using only MQTT. Now we have MQTT and Kafka combination. Uh, each edge device, uh, so each production line gets its own edge device with the MQTT broker on it. We have every factory every plant gets its own on-premise server with MQTT broker running on it. And then you have per enterprise, per company, you have one uh, broker running on the cloud. And with this, um, each layer can decide, okay, what information do I want to give to the next layer? Ideally, all of them. And now you can start sharing information across the plants as well. Um, in real time, via, via MQTT Kafka, or um, via historic data, uh, because now we can see the data from all these plants in one single uh, dashboard, for example, in Grafana. Oh, okay, interesting. So now on a, on a different topic, um, on, on the UMH stack, uh, you have a module that is called the Camera Connect, which yes. is, um, uh, it's, it's, its role is to automatically detect cameras in the network and make them yes. accessible uh, via MQTT. So I, I would imagine that this may cater for things like uh, machine vision. Uh, uh, can you give us some machine vision use cases uh, for the UMH? Yeah. Um, so the the uh, microservice, so Camera Connect is a microservice. It sends, it ultimately finds Gen ICAM compatible cameras in the network and sends all the images to MQTT Kafka. And the goal behind it is that now, once you have the images in a IT compatible format, it's really easy to now do either classic image processing or machine learning on it. And it was developed together with the with the um, with other company. Uh, it's called Anticipate. We're sitting actually here in the in the same same building, and they're focusing on um, machine vision. And we we sat together and we thought, okay, we we do the infrastructure. So um, we know about how to scalable send data around, how to store it, et cetera. And they are experts on the topic of machine vision. And it's not only about, um, about doing the machine learning algorithms, it's also around everything else. So 
choosing the right camera, um, choosing the right, right, the right lightning, um, etc. And there are the experts on it, and we sat together and we developed Camera Connect um, do, together. And what they're doing, for example, is, or what we did together is, for example, um, quality control. So you have an, you have an operator which takes uh, one of the projects we did, for example, at the uh, Digital Capability Center is they're producing like wristbands and it's hard to detect these quality failures, like printing errors with traditional, um, with traditional vision. Um, so we did actual two cases, one with, with, with Cognex, like traditional image processing, and then one with uh, machine vision. And the operator puts it in, presses a button, uh, the camera takes a picture, picture goes to, to MQTT, from MQTT, the picture goes then into machine learning algorithm um, or, or microservice, which takes the image and pushes it into a TensorFlow model. The result classification is coming back again uh, to MQTT. Then we have a microservice just for the signal lamp, uh, which just listening to a specific MQTT topic. And if there is a classification coming in, uh, which is bad, it says, okay, the, the light goes to red. And uh, then the operator receives the red light. Okay, product quality is bad. Okay, I should, I should put it uh, somewhere else. This is, for example, like one of the use cases, quality inspection. You can also do, do it for uh, detecting failures, predictive maintenance, uh, and, and, and stuff like that. So this is like one one use case of machine vision and how you can incorporate that with MQTT and unified namespace. Nice. Okay. Now, so last but certainly uh, not least, uh, you recently published a very interesting article uh, entitled Historian versus Open Source Databases. And I would mm -hmm. love for you to, to, to break this down for our audience. Uh, what's your take on historian versus open source databases? Yeah, of course. So um, the it, it came up actually at, uh, at at our customers. So we saw that one, that a couple of them, even though they actually had all the values already in Grafana and by TimeScale DB, um, they were still using InfluxDB. And for us, it was like, why are they doing? Why they're doing it like that? And we also saw that other companies were having discussions about historians and open source databases. So there are, um, they, they were combining it. So there were, each plant has a historian and IT just wanted to forget about them. And then just sending things in cloud, which was weird because data is now duplicated. And we really went into it. Uh, we talked with, uh, with a lot of experts. We spent a lot of time on it. And our conclusion was um, that traditional IT databases discourage OT people from working with the data. So imagine now you're an OT person, you're, you're at the production line, uh, you just want to see some values. Uh, why is the machine not running compared to values, temperature and um, energy consumption, whatever, and see whether, whether this was the, the cause for um, uh, downtime. And now you have to work with the, with the database, a normalized database like SQL. And suddenly you have to work with uh, joins and write complicated SQL queries. You don't have the time when you were there at the shop floor. And this is what we also saw that a couple of our customers were doing. They were just using InfluxDB just to see some data. And this discouragement 
um, of, of course, you could give them at, at first, we were, uh, they were using just the Grafana version of it. Then we thought, okay, let's test it. Let's just give them direct access to the database. But even in our team, um, people struggle to replicate it for a couple of minutes. Uh, and and they're, they're, they're doing this uh, IIT stuff um, up and down. So it was it's hard to use. And it's not only hard to use for them, it also doesn't provide all the functionality. So there's the topic of data modeling. So data needs to be available in the ISO 95 format, like enterprise, site, plant, uh, sorry, enterprise, site, area, production line, work cell, equipment, PLC, tech, this type of logic. And uh, typical SQL database, you, you could, could do that, but um, it also doesn't have a visualization tool so that you can just press, okay, I want to have this, this production line, uh, press it, and now I can see all my tags. It doesn't work like that. You can easily build it, these functionalities, but by default, they don't have it. And it's also the other way around that historians um, discourage IT people to work with the data. So imagine that you're now a data engineer. You, you, you have all the proof of concepts, but now you need to do machine learning algorithms. So you want to deploy them. And it's really hard to get the data out of there. Of course, there are some some um, connectors, like there could be REST API, but it's really hard to uh, to get it out. And for you, it's the data is lost as soon as there is as as it lands up in the historian, um, which, which is kind of sad. So I, we talk with experts, and they said, "Yeah, it's it, it's like this. It's hard to get out. Of course, you could continuously query it, but." You could continue to query it and take the results and push it into the cloud, but then it's it's duplicated. It's you you could do it. What you can do is if you have unified namespace, you could send one uh, part of the data or the data could send them to the historian, but you could also send them at the same time to uh, to 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 the, to the cloud for further processing. Um, and additionally we took a look at historians and they're not really compatible with the modern IT landscapes. They have different approaches for reliability, scalability, maintainability. Um, I don't want to go into the details, but typical IT tool databases, SQL-like, Elasticsearch, uh, Timescale, they really spend a lot of time in their documentation talking about them or they implement stuff like logging or metrics, uh, alerts, and this is not typically included in an historian, or at least they don't write about it, which just creates friction. And what we thought is, okay, um, we, have, we, have, we have IT people, we have OT people, and what they actually need is an I maintainable system by IT, so something that's IT best practice, but that can be used by an OT person for just to use his uh, their their language, just allow the data querying and, and, and stuff like that. And for, uh, for that, we did a proof of concept and still in, in, in close, close, close beta, just to change the UI of, in Grafana just a little bit and just provide a little bit more functionality so that it just feels like working with a historian, uh, even though it is just, just a timescale to be in the background. 
And this is what we're currently internally testing. And if we, if we manage to do that, and right now it's looking good, then it could be actually an alternative to an historian. It could be then the United Manufacturing Hub would not also be tools to, to extract data, et cetera, would also be a historian based on IT best practice standards, which I think uh, both sides would love. Oh yeah, that's certainly interesting. Uh, we'll certainly be looking out to uh, find out the results of uh, that project. So yeah, Jeremy, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, having you on the show. I really enjoyed having a conversation yeah, thank with you. you here. So thank you so much for coming through and I uh, wish to speak to you soon. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you that I, uh, that you had the time to talk with me. Thank you that you, you uh, invited me. And uh, yeah, also thank you to the audience for, for listening. Thank you. Thank you.